Everybody, welcome back to the homeroom educators, educating educators. Today, I'm joined by my lovely host, Kaylee, and today we're talking about learning environments. Take it away, Kaylee. We're going to be talking about learning environments. Woohoo! <laughs> so, all about, can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. All about spaces and the area in which you do your teaching or not teaching. Yeah, I'm expecting this is going to look very, very different in a, <laughs> a home room environment compared to what a classroom will be. And yes. I think I'm probably going to shock and appall you with what is seen in the standard government system. Probably. All right, so let's start off nice and lovely, and then we'll go down the dark rabbit hole that is the government education system. Okay. All right, so what so I does, guess I'm going first. You go for it. What does your, your classroom in a house look like? Is it a set room? Is it across the house? Is it everywhere? What does it look like? Yes. Yeah. So it's a little bit of everything. We, before we moved, we had a dedicated room where everything was and it was fantastic. It was amazing. Everything was all in one spot. We had a desk, big table where they would do all their work. We had all the posters up and it was still part of the house. So I really enjoyed that. Um, When we moved, we lost that extra space. So Now we have, I have a little office, but it's like half of the space of the previous homeschool room. So I have like my desk and all of our supplies in there, but we do most of our work at the kitchen table, which I love because I can cook and move around them as they are doing whatever they're working on. I can also be working on fermenting food and all of the different things. And they will do schoolwork outside with the chickens, or we will go on road trips, and we will go to Chick-fil-A and different places where we just take our schoolwork wherever we go, and wherever we are, that's where we're learning. So when you had that set space, was that in a way of trying to replicate what a classroom would look like or what you thought a stereotypical classroom would be? Like you mentioned things like posters or anchor charts and things up what was what's your purpose behind having posters up on a wall when we were doing that um we were also doing the co-op and there were so many kids I mean we have four and then we had a handful of other kids and it was too chaotic to try to keep up with it all in my living room so we moved to our own space um the posters were just for fun um I thought it was cute to have all the cursive posters, um, the alphabet, French, Spanish, all of the things that we teach. Um, They were all up, not necessarily to replicate, but just um, to make it feel more cozy, I guess. Yeah, and I think what you did there, a lot of people listening will be able to harken back to what it was like when there was remote learning going on in households. I know lots of families out there, they tried to have a dedicated little space that was the little mini version of school. 
and they right. did similar things to like what you said, had a little tie at a small table, furniture. They might have had um, posters or learning resources up in the wall to help their children. But what you were mentioning about your posters being cute and cosy, that actually has a, a good place in what, what would be considered quality education. We call them anchor charts. And for students who might be feeling lost or they can't quite find the answer and they're really trying to narrow down what they're thinking about, having those resources up around the room, that can anchor their thoughts and help drive back to the point of what they were trying to focus on. So if it was a student who's trying to figure out, say, maths, um, groups of three, and they're trying to figure out how many groups of three they can make out of, say, 36 or whatever number they're working on, they might come back to that anchor chart and use that as a reference to remind themselves and reinforce what they already know. But as we know, if you're feeling stressed or anxious, you might be clouded in your thinking. You may not be able to find an answer that you know already. You know, they might do that or they might be the weird kid like me and they would distract me further. So with with the charts in my classroom, I would be so lost in my own little world that I would try to figure out how many words I could spell with the words that were on that chart instead of doing the things that I was supposed to be doing that's what I would do (laughs) fair enough and there are (laughs) kids that think outside the box like you Kelly they do exist (laughs) and I think the, the intention for those anchor charts is what I just described what you said is a very real reality But then on the other side of things, we have what happens in a lot of classrooms. We have teachers who have these wonderful anchor charts and they leave them up year after year. They don't reference them. They don't teach to them. They don't go, oh, remember when we were talking about groups of five and we were looking at how we made those groups of five on this poster together? They don't do that. They have them up in classrooms. I've done learning walks before where it's like you're coaching other educators and helping them build their professional practice And I'd walk into classrooms instead of just watching the teacher the whole time, I'd get down to a kid's level and have a chat with kids at tables. And I'd go, oh, can you tell me about this poster you've got over there? What did you do when you were learning about that? And the kids would go, oh, I don't know. That was here when we started the year. And so it's just so impersonal. Yes, very much so. The learning material hasn't become real to them because they've not experienced it. Um, And I, I remember you telling me that you would start the room off being empty and have the kids help you decorate the space with the learning material. Yeah, absolutely. And that's genius. Yeah, um, blank slate, the kids build to it, and they have that buy-in, and they have a bit of skin in the game and what their learning environment is. So we've got those things that we talk about with those nice little pretty things you have them on the wall that might actually be helpful to some kids, others that may not. That's just one small part of it. What are your thoughts about the size of a physical space? Now, I know it's harder for you at the moment with the move, What type of a physical space do you think you need as a minimum? I personally think that you can homeschool in whatever type of space that you have. Um, I don't think it needs to be some elaborate, like the Instagram Pinterest mom, where Mm -hmm. everything is just neatly mapped out and she has the chalkboard and all the things. I mean, I have the chalkboard, but I don't think you need any of that. There are several parents that I follow. I mean, again, on Instagram but they are on the road and they have the van and they're doing RV life and you can homeschool in that type of space also. Um, So I think wherever you are is enough space because your kids already live there and they're learning whether or not you are actively sitting down with them and teaching them a material or curriculum. 
So whatever space you have, I think is fine. Um, you just might have to adjust your expectations on what you want to accomplish. Absolutely. And it's, it's so much easier in that aspect when you've got a homeschooling situation or even to a lesser extent, a private school that might have a classroom of a lesser number of students. But as soon as you step into a classroom in any government school, you're looking at anywhere from 21 to 30 students in what is really quite a small space. Uh, and this is my my big bugbear when it comes to government education that within the kindergarten system or the preschool system, there's laws around each child needs to have like a 1.25 square metre space to themselves. So the size of the room dictates the numbers of how many students you have in the room because the government recognised too many children in one space, it doesn't work. But right. magic, magically, as soon as they leave kindergarten and go into primary school, they throw that out and they pack them in like sardines. Yeah, and, and you see it. You see, the right. tape, by the time you put desks in and tables in a room, that takes out so much space of the room, and, and oh, kids are shuffling totally. in between each other. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that that is a healthy approach. I mean, I can't imagine spending my day because I'm more introverted with 29 other people next to me all day. I would go crazy. I would go crazy. And generally, those are the types of kids that you see those air quotes, behavior issues come from because they are not comfortable in that space. Oh, yeah. Um, and I I have, and I'm sure you probably would have had similar experiences when you were in a public school that were your desks all set out in straight lines, like tables butted up together or single little desks? What was your we experience? Had, we had, um, so I remember kindergarten very, very different than first grade and up. And I was at a different location, so I don't know if, like, the move, because we moved around a lot when I was a kid, changed. But I remember, like, I was the last person in my age group as a millennial to have just morning or afternoon kindergarten, where it wasn't a full day. It was just half wow. of a day. Um, And we had a big desk for all of the kindergartners but separately. So we had like groups of five at one table and it was big. And we had like a shape banner above each different table. And that's how you knew where to sit. You would go to your shape. Um, and that was amazing. Like I really loved kindergarten. Like we had the big storybooks and the big clock and all the toys and it was great. But after that, every grade going forward were the small individual desks um, with like the cubby on the inside and they were all right next to each other yeah so they weren't touching but there was like no space like I could reach out and touch the person next to me yeah mine was a very much a similar experience to that where in kindergarten or preschool it was you had those almost like island tables where it was a few tables stuck together into like a rectangle and there'd be ta- right. um, chairs around the outs the whole thing yes um, yeah that that comes from a, a a Kathy Walker approach who's an educator who coined a term called play-based learning where all learning happens alongside and with other people. So students, when they're together, they're parallel learning, they're learning and watching others and they're learning by engaging with each other. Somewhere I think along that's the, more effective. Yeah, somewhere along the lines, that dropped off into primary schools as having straight rows of desks, either individual little desks where you flip the desktop up and you've got your chair or it's tables yep. just in straight lines not so much in the junior years in Australia which is thankful I'm thankful for 
Um, we see those, a lot of those little island things happening, but certainly as you progress up into the senior levels of years three, four, five, and six, you see those straight lines. And I don't know quite where educators are thinking this is a great idea. Well, you I'm know, sure- I wonder if it has to do with testing. Possibly. If that's because they don't want other people cheating on I'm think- their test. I'm thinking it more comes along of a, a behavior management and socializing thing. Yeah. Often you hear, oh, they can't sit next to that person. They talk all the time. Well, that's kind of the whole point. They're talking to each other because even if they're talking about stuff from the weekend, they're still actively learning together and they're building that yeah. relationship. I myself, when I had a, a straight class in the classroom as a generalist teacher teaching everything, I still had those island teaching stations. And to support students of different needs, generally what I would do for most of the time, I'd allow kids to sit where they wanted to within reason. But at the same time, I'd try and make sure I'd match up what you would consider a higher learner, someone who's quite advanced um, with mid-level kids, kids that are kind of just where they should be and kids that are working below expected level so that those kids can support one another and they can bounce off each other's learning and that, that kind of a deal. The problem that you see with the straight rows of tables, often what happens is the naughty kids, air quote, or the kids that are considered low, get sat at the very front and the, right. and progressively the smarter kids go all the way out because the teachers can trust those kids are going to complete their learning and pay attention. And that's just a different form of segregation. Absolutely and it classmates is. Classmates treat you differently, which is unfortunate. And we know, kids notice if there's a table with all the kids that are considered slow or bad. Oh, of kids course. Kids notice that for sure. Yeah, the, we have that here. I don't know if you guys have it there where they have like the gifted classes Mm -hmm. and they'll take out the kids that are doing poorly and that is like a humiliating experience like I was in that for a while um and then everybody knows and typically you have to miss out on the fun activities yeah like art or music or whatever and then you're doing more schoolwork which like come on nobody's learning if you're taking away their you know quote-unquote rewards well while we're talking on that now let's I'm going to redirect this conversation just based on what you said, where we're still thinking about physical spaces, but you mentioned that taking kids out who are either working at gifted level or below expected level. What are your thoughts on this? This is something I've done in the past. Instead of having streamed classes where streaming means that you're teaching all kids at the same level, instead of doing that, because we know kids in one classroom, you're going to have a a whole range of learning abilities. It's not all the same. What I would do in the past was, going off the information I gathered from testing or just working with the kids on -on one-on-one, I'd get the idea of where those kids were. And I I have a gut feeling and I'd have my evidence air quotes to show where they were. I would chat to other teachers in my team and I'd say, can we run a intervention class in their normal learning time? Say it's, we all have maths after recess. One math session a week, I'll take the kids who are working at mid-level and I'll run some activities with them, make it fun and engaging. Um, you might take the kids who are working above level. You can go off with them and really challenge them and push them and see how far you can get them. And Kaylee, let's say you've got the kids who are working below level. They need a little bit more attention. They need some support. They might need some manipulatives. Can you go work with them for one hour a week and see how we right. do right. that? How does that gel with you? I, I appreciate that. Um, idea and that thought process because I feel like when you single out kids and then you reprimand them for not learning at your schedule like you are 
just squashing the relationship with their love of learning and that's tragic um so I think that is a good way to do things and I'm I think about like a vintage um like when they first started having school and all of the kids were in the same space at the same time we didn't separate them by age or grades or any of that and everybody learned math at their own level Uh, we didn't separate them and you're doing algebra and you're doing this and it it doesn't make sense um like our son our oldest son is in three different grade levels in different subjects so in spelling he's like in sixth grade going into seventh he's 10 um 11 he's 11 and then in math he's a little bit lower um language is a little bit lower so we're just um we're teaching him at his pace with the different subjects. And I think that's the way it should be because nobody learns all at the same rate, all at the same time. You're this age. So you should know this. It doesn't make any sense. No, like if we did that into adulthood. Like you're 30, you should know how to change your oil. Like that doesn't, it doesn't make sense to go off of age. It goes off of experience. Yeah, that's right. And like you said, when you are talking about a, a traditional schoolhouse where, and you think of shows like Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman or Frontier mm-hmm. type of stuff, they have that little schoolhouse. And we've got one locally that's heritage listed. That's the old school in Glengarry. And it's just tiny little room, but you know that would have been full of kids, equal to the population at the time, of course, ranging from probably kindergarten age through into high school, all working at the same time. But teachers in those days did not have the stress or the worry about meeting government prescribed milestones of where they should be they were teaching and meeting the kids needs at point of need which is something that I think that homeschooling really drives home well because who knows your kids better than you do right and where their needs are and how they learn yeah and at times you might need some some guidance or, or some help of how to teach a specific area or how to challenge your child further and hopefully that's something that this podcast can help families out with yeah you absolutely nailed it with that that's that's um a great analogy that traditional schoolhouse you're right well I think that's just the way it is I I notice it in our kids because we have um our 11 year old our almost five year old and our three-year-old who all learn along beside each other and it's really amazing to watch our three-year-old just soak up all of the information and learn Spanish and French and Spencer is teaching her multiplication facts. I don't know that she understands those concepts, but she can spout off the facts for you. And that's pretty awesome. So I I wonder how much we've lost as a whole by separating kids into only being with their peers. One, where is the encouragement or the drive to strive for something higher? Mm-hmm. When you're only surrounded by your same age group. Um, two, in what other area of life are you only with people in your same age group? Not in the workplace, not in community, not in religious facilities. Not it doesn't make partners. sense. Your partners generally can be right. a bit of an age right. difference, right? So I don't understand that. Um, there's just, and then. I feel like there's a lack of compassion that comes along with that because I watch our 11 year old be patient and help the younger to learn and he'll sit with them 
And then he's learning ways to teach. He's learning ways to manage um, all of these different concepts that he's learning while teaching. And it's a really cool thing to watch as they come together and try to figure things out as a team. It's really cool. Awesome. Now I'm going to throw a bit of a memory of my university experience at you. So we had our placement, which we do each year within a school where we'd be paired up with a a current teacher so we can learn to become teachers and best practice and all that good stuff. And, of course, you want to experience different schools. So I went to a private school. I went to a denominational school, which is a Catholic school. A lot of government schools I went to. And I actually went down to Melbourne, which is our capital city of our state, and I experienced what an open learning school was like. And if you've got any idea of what open living is in a house where your lounge room and kitchen are all together and everything's very open and and very big sounds rad that will give you an idea of what a school this school looks like it was literally like a basketball stadium super high roof really wide and the only things that were dividing the classrooms were those office room dividers yeah and and little bag lockers or about waist height so you had 30 or 40 classrooms, classrooms, air quote, all in this one space. Yeah. And I tell you what, the noise levels were horrendous. Yeah, I can imagine that is giving me a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> and I, it's, it's at the moment, it's, it's kind of like all the, the rage at the moment. They're pushing for these as being great learning spaces. And I can't help but feel that's, that's being done for a reason because I just can't, for my own teaching knowledge now and, and being around kids and my nieces and nephews, I can't see that being a positive learning space. No. The distractions are everywhere. It's hard enough kids get distracted in the best of learning environments, but that right. was, that just threw me. Well, I feel like doing that is kind of taking the worst of both environments of like a homeschool Montessori free-for-all and then like a government education and like we're gonna put the worst traits of both together and see what happens (laughs) (laughs) that sounds horrendous it really was so bad i can't can't believe it's the big thing at the moment anyway i've never heard of anything like that it is disgusting i it's i think it's being done for a very very nefarious reason to um to keep our education system going down the international rankings but that's just me with my little tin foil hat again. Um, let's talk about <laughs> yeah. some po- let's talk about some positives. What are some things that you have besides your anchor charts and things that make it feel homey and warm? Is there anything special that you have around in your physical spaces for your kids? We have all the things. So when I decided to homeschool, um, which was way before my kids were even born, but when I started homeschooling them. I started collecting puzzles and charts and um, different learning activities and flashcards and all of the things. So you could go through our space and aside from the way it's organized, we have almost everything that a classroom would have. We have dry erase boards and markers and chalk and chalkboards and we have a light board that my sensory seeking five-year-old loves so if I'm having trouble getting him to do a worksheet I will put the paper on the light board and give him a highlighter and it's like magic and that will help him work 
Um, we've got folders and binders and rulers and everything. <laughs> what, about, what about things like, and I'm going to throw a few government department buzzwords at you that are really big at the moment. Um, sensory stations or reading nooks. Do you have anything along those lines? So I love books. We have a book problem. Um, we have a book storage problem because <laughs> I have a book addiction. And one whole wall of our living room is books. We have them in crates. We have them in bookshelves. We have all of it. So we have a whole wall full of books. And all of them are mixed in. So like my books, Kale's books, um, how-to books for gardening and farming and Spencer's Hardy Boys books and the kids' books. They're all mixed in. And we have a really cool chair. And they will just sit down and read over there. I don't call it a reading nook, but they love to sit in the big chair and pick up a book that they can't read yet and look at pictures and books and words and try to figure it out. Um, so we have that. I do sensory bins for my sensory seeking five-year-old who just needs that simulation. Um, so we have those things. I don't use them as frequently. Um, the reading area gets utilized more than anything else. And I think that's fantastic. Cool. I'm okay with that. So what that would look like in my classroom that I've had in the past is I generally make my reading nook the corner. So it kind of funnels kids to that point when they need it. I'd have a couch. I'd have a couple of bean bags. I'd have a big tractor tire with pillows in it. And then I'd have a, a rack with just books that the, the students themselves would pick when they go to the library. They'd pick out their interests, load it up. And if I saw a student who was needed to self-regulate or needed space, I'd go, go to the reading nook, chill out for a bit. And they'd generally just grab a book and sit down somewhere and lie down with it. That's amazing. On top of that, to make it feel more enclosed, what I'd do is I'd pin like an old bed sheet up on top um, and hang it off the dividers that would kind of enclose it to make it cave-like. Inside, yeah. I have like a little a little light. Um, yeah, just making it that's feeling like a safe space for those kids who needed it, and not safe spaces in a, a lefty woke type of a deal, a genuine <laughs> safe space where they feel like they can go to. You know, there's but, nothing wrong with children needing a safe place. <laughs> no, not at all. It's been a co-opted word, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I do. The other thing is, I'm really big on having actual live plants in a classroom. Yeah. So generally I'd have um, peace lilies, succulents, all sorts of plants around the classroom. That ends up becoming something that the class works on together. It's up to us to make sure that these plants survive. Um, they make our classroom appealing, provides oxygen to the room. And on top of That's that... That's amazing. I, yeah, on top of that, I in the past I've always had like a large four-foot fish tank aquarium. Cool. We'd have that set up in the room somewhere. The kids would take turns in feeding them each day. Um, all that type of stuff, bar the live plants, I'd have to, I've had to stop when I've walked into the art room because there's no space. So I've currently got another fish tank sitting at home to my we just recently, <laughs> We just recently got some indoor plants and I was telling my husband how much I love having green things around. Like it just feels better. And um, our five-year-old has taken a liking to watering them. I don't know how well they were survive with all of the watering. <laughs> but we're going to figure it out. There's a, there were studies done originally around the Scandinavian model of 
um, forest kinder or bush kinder, as we call it, where kids are out in nature learning compared to those who are inside in a standard environment. And what came out from that was that students who are engaging with the, phys- the natural world more have a greater, um, a higher rate of um, being content, happy, engaged in learning. Those that aren't have lower scores of that. Um, as a result, the, the study continued and they checked out schools that had live plants in their rooms to see if that helped. Um, I think that study's still ongoing, but I think that the, the previous data that I saw was showing that it has actually had an impact on student learning by having something in that space. Kids need nature. And I don't know why, as a society, we fight so much what children actually need. So they don't need to be stuck in a tiny room for eight hours a day, five days a week. Like that is not healthy for anyone, more or less children. They, if you would just watch and listen to them, their instinct is to be outside. Mm -hmm. Our kids, I have a hard time keeping them inside. They don't like it. They want to be outside. They want to be running. They want to be playing. They want to be feeding the chickens. They, they need to be active. They need to be moving. They need to be in fresh air and sun. Um, so I think it's really unfortunate that we have stopped observing and really focusing on what the children need. Yeah, and I think there's this there's this misconception that students need to be in that physical learning space all the time. Right. Where that's not necessarily true. That a great example is if you've got wonderful weather outside, take advantage of it. Like I'd often right. have have a say. I the weather was so good on the day. I'd go to my planner and look at it and go, okay, I was going to teach multiplication here in this hour, but because the weather's so good, we're going to go out with measuring jugs and containers, and we're going to work on volume and capacity. We'll do a little well, bit. It's of an really int- good that you have that flexibility because I don't think in America teachers here do. Not by the sounds of this. Now I'm just going off what you see on documentaries and what you see on television and films they are literally in that room 24 7 the whole like we you get an hour for recess i think i think it's an hour um unless you're bad and then they can take <laughs> that away right it just um, it seems they're so, in they're indoors all it day. sounds so counteract counterintuitive to what you're trying to do like like I said, with that volume and capacity, you take kids out to the sand pit and like, all right, how much sand can we fit in this jug? All right, cool. We'll note it down. Well, how much water can we fit in this jug? Oh, what did we notice? That it has the same capacity. It has the same water and same amount of sand. And kids actually and that's learn. Hands on learning. Hands on learning. real to them. Yeah. And like you when do... you're just throwing facts at them, they're like, okay, it's like they can concept. memorize it, but I don't know that they're comprehending it. That's right. And even the idea of having like a measure, a measuring chart in your classroom and measuring the kids height at the start of the year. And then at the start of the next term and the next term and the very end of the year, they've got something that they're drawing on, taking them outside. All right, we're going to go outside and we're going to, um, with chalk on the basketball court or on your driveway, if you're homeschooling, we're going to write down all the multiplication facts we know. And right. you can play maths based games around it, running around, get the body moving. Don't feel like yeah. that you have to be fixated in your one learning space that applies to parents and teachers alike that is across the board um definitely all of that and I also don't understand like the misconception that children aren't learning when they're home so 
I messaged you as soon as I saw the new Matilda, and I am still <laughs> angry. I'm still angry. So Matilda, the musical on Netflix, watch it. Don't watch it. I don't care. Um, the whole beginning of the movie is her reading books, reading books. Of course, Matilda, anybody who knows the story, that's what it's about. And the government comes because she's not enrolled in school. And that's apparently really, really bad for her to not be enrolled in school. And the parents are like, oh, we forgot to enroll her. Um, so they tell them that she was homeschooled and the teacher comes and asks her, well, what type of schooling have you been doing? And she's like, nothing really to do like completely unschooled, which is fucking rad as shit. <laughs> and the teacher's like, well, how would you like to go to school school where we learn literature and all these different things? And so the next scene is her going to school and she's listing all of the literature that she's read, and everyone is blown away. But nobody sees the irony in that. Like no, she it's... was learning and reading more outside of school than any of her peers, and it just makes me so mad. That that's a, <laughs> that is a really interesting novel, and I I would read that each year with students in my class as a class text. That it's funny that a, a child who's had no input even from her parents. No input right. from a school was self-taught. She was self-teaching. And when she got to school, that's when she was being held back because they wouldn't allow her to go ahead of what everyone else was doing. So much to the point where Miss Honey, a teacher, mm-hmm. she would bring in texts for her to go along at her own pace. Exactly. And it, it just blows uh, a lot my of, mind. A lot of mixed messaging in that film. I absolutely and agree. And everybody's going to watch it and be like, oh, it's a good thing she went to school. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. She was doing fine. I mean, aside from the abusive parents, but of course they had to throw that in there. We're homeschooling. We're abusive. It's just the underlying message that makes me want to throw my TV in the trash. Yes, it's the underlying message that there's parents who don't care and don't have any input are bad homeschoolers. The government is also bad in that film, and the only person who's doing really well is the kid who's self-taught. Right. Yeah, that movie could be a whole episode on its own, just the way the learning space the original Matilda is where it's at I mean clearly that's the better movie where it's all gray and bleak and then the second the mean principal walks out then it flips and now it's sunny and bright and everybody's happy and we can learn and and that's just such a good underlying message there yes Miss Trunchbull ugh Good indicator my, of uh, government oppression on children's creativity. It's one of my favorite movies as a kid, and I'm so sad that they ruined it. Even even on that film, and I know we're kind of digressing from it, but Miss Honey as a teacher comes across as one of those, those stereotypical teachers you see, the people that graduate and want to make change in the world, and they're full of enthusiasm. And as soon as they get into the government system, they realize that they can't change anything, and they, they end up leaving for, in the first four years of teaching. and. That's what Miss Trunchbull is the message of. She's the message that if you're a teacher who cares and wants to put time and effort into your kids, you're constrained by what the system will allow you to do. That's right. very evident in that film. Yeah. I mean, the American school system is basically the trokey, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> very much so. It's uh, Matilda without the cake. <laughs> how about um, have you ever come across... Uh, what are they called? 
having a mental blank here. Uh, like a welfare dog. Like a service dog? Yeah, like a service dog in the classroom, like, you know, in a school where it might be. It could be any breed as long as they've undergone the so-called training. These dogs are popping up across schools in Australia where there might be a welfare officer in the school, an education support person, and the dog ends up being a mechanism for kids who are more troubled, who need support, who might have significant trauma. It becomes like a, an outlet for students to um, experience some love in their life and then they build a connection with the dog and at the same time with the adults around them, which they're having trouble with. We had a dog at our school until he retired, um, like a little French poodle type of dog, and the kids absolutely loved him. He'd wander into classroom while kids were learning, and we had the biggest upkick from parents and families at the start. That dog's going to interrupt my child's learning, and that dog's could they hurt my learn. child. And that they can't learn; yeah. it's too distracting. And that dog might bite my child. Well, I think we more children bit the dog than the dog so. bit children. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd be more worried about the dog safety. So, when I taught at a private school, we didn't have that. But again, we didn't have more than thirty students total. So through all grades kindergarten through senior we didn't so I don't know if it was because it's been so long I mean it's been about 10 years um and that is a more recent thing we're seeing more and more service animals um or if it's location I mean everything that you're saying makes all Australia schools seem really legit it's uh I think we're at a point compared to your school where it's a bit more polished, but the underlying issues are still there. And that's systematic. I don't think you can go to any school in the West, any school that uses the Prussian model and not experience those problems. Right. The programming is still there, but at least the environment is not as toxic. Like I don't know the Adams family where she had never been to school and she's like, what's that? And they say, they tell her, whatever it is and Where she goes, kids oh, attend it. five hours a day it's, oh, prison. it's a prison for children i get it like <laughs> yeah or in slumberland where she is talking she's like well if it's not a prison can i leave when i want can i can i eat when i want can i play when i want no you can't do any of those things let's talk about that then the physical spaces and how schools have changed when i was a kid I went to a, a elementary school, a primary school. That was a country school, quite small. We had our, our scattered little buildings around the spot. We had our large oval. We had our big bush track where we go up into the, the trees, into the bush and have fun, sand pits, playground, all that jazz. We didn't have a defined border around our school. We had a basic little short fence and that was it. The majority of schools I'm seeing now in the public system have High, tall, six, seven foot black gates all the way around, locked at all times. That's just the definition of a prison right there. And right. unfortunately, the way that society is headed, that is justified by the fact for children's safety. Right. Whereas in the past, we didn't have a great number of those types of situations happening. Not in my lived experience anyway. No, what about you? I remember... Um, because I'm 28, so it's a little bit more recent, but when I went to school in Michigan, I remember the drive, like the drive up to the school was pretty far back. So you had to like go in a bit 
and the school was like in the middle of the lot and then behind the school was just a huge field that went all the way back to like a border of trees there wasn't really a fence I don't remember um and there was no fence like from where the school and then the backfield where we would have the recess was there wasn't like a fence defining the front versus the back of the school um and I don't remember ever having the threat when I was young of school shooters or intruders or anything like that it was always like the basic fire drill um we didn't do earthquake drills because you know Michigan Mm -hmm. um but fire drills was the only thing that we ever did that would be a cause for concern and those were done like if we were outside we would just walk through the parking lot because it was open yeah and so i don't i think you you hit the nail on the head because i'm talking from a, a foreigner's standpoint or an australian standpoint when we see schools in america they've changed so drastically over the past 20 to 30 years you just look back at what standard cinema was you'd see a likes of a kindergarten cop where you see that school and it's very open there's no fence there you walk up a nice green belt go into the school and that's it and then that translated into schools that are surrounded by bars and have police and have active police forces on school grounds we that never had that far, that is such a foreign concept for someone outside of america that seems so strange and is it crazy? Like, give us your children so we can raise them eight hours, five days a week. And we're going to do such a good job that we have to have our own police force. Yeah. Your children are so safe because we've got armed people around them at all times. If you need armed people around your children at all times, are they really safe? Yeah. And they'll they'll say, you know, the threat of armed shooters and intruders. And typically... If you go by what the news says, all of those instances, those children who are adults who grow up to shoot up schools have been a part of the public school system. Homeschooled kids aren't going into schools and shooting them up. People who go to private schools aren't going into schools and shooting them up. This is a strictly public school thing. No, and it's it's a pub it's a public school issue of mental health as well. Because a lot of the time these people have deeply seated issues that have exacerbated whatever's going on in their own lives and for whatever reason they thought that was the only option in their life so it's not a problem around firearms it's not a problem around the school being secure and safe built like a Fort Knox it's a problem of making sure that those students who go through a government system are in a safe space mentally and if we've got kids that are coming out like that I'd be guessing that they're not safe spaces in that regard Well, I think that goes back to the environment. So if we're pulling kids out of school and making it known like, hey, that guy, he's a loner. He's always by himself. He's behind everybody. He's at that table with those kids. And he's missing out on the fun outlets of physical energy and music and different things that your brain needs. And then we're under this fluorescent lighting and inside the schools. They are not decorated. The hallways have some bulletin boards when I was in school, but for the most part, just gray brick, gray brick everywhere, like a prison. And so when you have an environment like that, and then you have bullying, which is a massive problem here, and then the classroom 
is so big like you're surrounded by other people and if you don't like them it's just forced interaction um and then if they're bullying you not getting along whatever and then now we have the added stress of social media so my husband and I talk about this a lot like he's like I don't like the suicide rate like are we getting weaker as a society I'm like well now it's relentless back when we were in school you could be bullied at school and go home and there was like a break I mean for most Mm -hmm. people I had an abusive household so not me but most people would have that where okay now I'm home I'm not there. I have some relief from that. But now you can be bullied on social media. And parents are giving their kids phones because of all the threats and being scared. And really, it's just inviting more trouble into your kid's life. And especially for kids, brains don't fully develop until they're the age of 21. So for the most part, a lot of people don't actually develop any form of self-resilience. If you don't have any form of self-resilience and you can't let those words of people picking on you run off your back like water off a duck's back, you're going to carry it with you. And like you said, in our generations, it was you'd go to school, you might be picked on a little bit, you'd hang around with your friends, you'd go home, you'd de-stress, you'd relax. Now with that social media, with your phone on you at all times, your child could be getting relentlessly targeted, picked on, on social media. may not even be directly. It might be people posting things about your child that they can still see. So you're right. right. It's absolutely relentless. So how do we overcome that? If it's all about physical spaces, how do we overcome that? Let's step away from the classroom in your home or the classroom in a school. How do we take that type of threat away and make your home a safe physical space for your kid? I've got some views that would be considered old school. Mine is ideally your kids should not be having mobile phones. They shouldn't. I agree with that. And I also know that there are some parents who are going to do it anyways. So setting clear defined boundaries with those if they're going to have them is important. Like have a charging station in the kitchen. Phones go here after 6 p.m. We don't touch them. And then lead by example. Like if you always have your phone in your hand, your kid's going to be like, what the fuck, man? Like have it to where dinner time, we are all sitting together. No one's on their phone period and be present with your kids like if you're distracted and you're not seeing the emotional turmoil that they're in and if you're not i don't know my parents my pastor dad would go through my phone and he would check it and like there was steep guidelines like i paid for that phone i worked i was homeschooled so who even did i know and i was still allowed to have a certain amount of contacts and open phone policy they could pick it up and go through it at any time and it was not to be in my room ever ever and I think they're like looking back on that as an adult like I thought that my parents were like insane like you are crazy but now looking back I can see that maybe well a bit strict and overzealous they were protecting me yeah it's we have to keep in mind that With the advance in technology, unfortunately, it's advanced the means for some really shitty and horrible human beings out there to take advantage of kids. And even kids who you would consider to be nasty towards each other to take advantage of each other. So I'm I'm all aboard. I'm on that. If the day comes when Amy and I have children that it's going to be a box for technology at a certain time, your 
charge them together, lead by example. That's great. And it's also explaining to your kid, it's not sugarcoating it, it's that we're not doing this to be old grouches. We're not doing this to punish you. We're doing this to protect you because there are some really terrible people out there. And, and they're not going to understand that and they're going to hate you. Yeah, and, and they will. think that you are awful and that's what I did to my parents and I hated them for it. And now as a parent, I can look back as an adult who is safe and not murdered in a ditch that they were doing what was best for me. Yeah, it'd be I'm actually quite interesting in, say, five, ten years' time because that would roughly come out to the decade of kids that have constantly been around technology. How many kids in the future will have been groomed at some point in their life? It's everywhere. Even just in movies and shows and music, it's programming everywhere. Absolutely. All right, I'm thinking about one other thing that's in, I think would be in everyone's houses, the refrigerator, (laughs) where you put your kids' work, you display the things that you're really proud of. As a school teacher, like I, you know, you just mentioned about public schools in your part of the world being grey bricks, just sterile looking. If you're a teacher in your school, you need to advocate for the refrigerator analogy in your school. You need to have displays up of student work. You need to have photos of your classes who are enjoying themselves and and being happy to try and make sure that that is a place where kids want to be. Um, Within my school, it might be a a teaching unit on, say, um, shape and form. And with the younger kids in the school, we're making things out of clay. Well, I'll set up a small table somewhere in the school with some of those kids' creations and photos of the kids making them for the rest of the school to see. Right. Because it seems like to me in our school system, the only things that get displayed are trophies. Football. For sports teams, Mm -hmm. right? Like trophies. Banners in um, the stadium. But not artwork. And I think that that's also a huge, I don't even know what to call that. It's just a huge problem where we're only displaying trophies for sports activities. But that also goes into funding. So we don't have new textbooks, but we have this gigantic stadium. Like if, if you look up the cost of the stadiums here in Texas for football, it's bananas, (laughs) millions, millions of dollars. So much much to the point I've seen um, F-18 Hornets flying over football games in high school. And teachers, yeah. And teachers have to buy their own school supplies ridiculous so we can't buy glue for the kindergarten class but we can give our high school students and like not even all of them because not all of them are playing football or being cheerleaders we're going to give them a football field it doesn't make any sense it's just a severe discrepancy in priorities let's talk about students buying and their own say in their learning spaces like even the school as a whole I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark and guess that American students don't have a great say in what their school grounds look like. No. Any pride in what they have. I'll give you some really positive examples out of my school. We've got a a student um, voice forum where students provide their feedback on what they'd like in their learning. We have a student school council where there's students who volunteer to be a voice for their peers. They'll fundraise, they'll get things, they'll put money towards new equipment, they'll get the equipment put in the school. These are the types of kids that 
instill a sense of pride in their learning space. And these kids will actively go around the school, pick up rubbish, put in the bin. They'll start gardening clubs together. They'll take care of garden beds. They'll plant things. Is that something that you've ever heard of or seen in American school system? No, I've seen something like that in my favorite show, The Gilmore Girls, where, and of course it's a private school, very well funded, and they're trying to figure out where the funds go and the seniors get to pick it. So whether like, I can't remember what it was. It was either like a really good telescope or something frivolous and everybody voted for the frivolous thing. I've only seen that concept and very small in TV shows. I've never heard of that actually happening. When I was in elementary school, the last year I was in public school, um, we planted trees in in the recess field, so along the drive. And I remember them making a really big deal about it, like in however long of a time frame, you can come back and see the tree that you planted, like a really big thing. And I'm not sure how they got away with it with like child labor laws, but we <laughs> dug the holes, we planted the trees and they were, you know, brought in from a tree farm. They were still small, but not mature. Um and things like that, but there was no say in like, hey, I'd rather have honeybees than trees. Like nobody was asking us, what kind of tree do you want or what kind of plant or would you rather do vegetables? Nobody was, we didn't really get a say in any anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely not a, a thing that's across the board across all Australian schools. You need to... You need to treat a government school or private school, really, if you're a parent who doesn't have the means to homeschool, if you're thinking about your children's school being your refrigerator, what is it showing you? The outside looking in, what does that school sell to you? Does the school give your child opportunity for voice? Does it give your child the ability to be proud of their accomplishments, proud of their peers? Does it give your child a safe and welcoming space? Those are the things you need to look for in a school. And unfortunately, not all schools will be the same like that. Yeah, Some will be and really here, good. And here in the States, you can't just pick a school that you're going to go to. Where you live, you are zoned for a school. That has started to come in within our area as well because so the population like, is so big, you have to go to the closest yeah. one. So it's yeah. not like you can just pick and choose which one you want to go to unless you're going to do um, private school or homeschool. And if you're in the situation where you absolutely have to put your kids in public school, my advice would be to be there as often as you can. Make your face known. Let them know that you're a parent who is concerned and loving towards your child and advocate for them. No, you're not taking a recess from my kid. No, you're not putting them in a different class when they misbehave. No, no, you're not, none of that. And then advocate for the things you want to see. So or try to organize fundraisers, be there as often as you can to make it a school where you would want to leave your child. Yeah, I don't know sometimes what's worse, an absent parent in the household or an absent parent from their child's education. Because an absent parent in the household, at least your child is in that space that you have some kind of control over. Whereas if you're an absent parent when your child's in a space that 
may not tick all the boxes what you consider safe or where they could be getting the best outcomes. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's an odd situation. You definitely need to be present in your child's learning. Even if it's yeah. going in to read with kids, like, oh, can I volunteer at reading right. time in the mornings? Um, they might have like a hot, our school has a hot shop lunch where once a week kids can buy like a hot dog or a pie or something that's a treat food. And there's a group of parents that organize that food. They count the money up, they make the food, they deliver to them classrooms. That's a presence in a school that may not only be beneficial for your own child, but for other children, especially right. kids who don't have any active engagement from parents. Especially with schools here, we hear about it all the time with the grooming behavior. We have a lot. I mean, I've seen more news stories recently than I ever have about teacher fired for having an inappropriate relationship with a student. How is this happening? And then you have the instances where teachers will be violent towards children and they get suspended or fired or whatever. And I guarantee that those things would happen less if more parents were inside, not for several reasons. Like one, when you get to know, and I know this from working in daycare um, and in private schools, is when you get to know a child and their background and their parent and you form a connection with them, you stop looking at them as just another number. And like, this is a kid who has a life outside of these four walls. They're loved. They have these struggles going on and you're more patient. And then two... I mean, it can help relieve some of the tension and the stress having another adult in the room. Cause I know our schools are pretty understaffed. Nobody wants to be a school, be a school teacher in America. I mean, there's too many threats of violence and school shooters and not, you know, the pay, all of that. So if you can go and help out and lend a hand to a teacher who might be struggling because There's a severe lack of parenting in America as well. And kids are really, really bad. I mean, I've been around a lot of them recently and I'm like, oh my God, children are getting worse and worse by the day. So if you can go and help out, I mean, I think that's the way to do it. Let let them know who you are. That's my kid. Don't fuck with my kid. (laughs) (laughs) I will kill you. Even from a teacher's perspective, it is actually really great to have another adult in the room. Not all yeah. schools have the ability to have a education support staff member like a um, an aide in every classroom. Sometimes the budget doesn't allow for that. And to have right. another adult in the room, it does relieve pressure from a teacher. You might think, right. I can remember my first year teaching. It was, it was all fresh. It was all new to me. And I thought, how the hell am I going to be able to read with all these kids in this one hour? And I felt yeah. overwhelmed. And by having a mother saying, hey, is it okay if I come in to read with the kids one day? That was the best thing I ever had that year because... I had a parent who was so involved in their child's learning, but the whole classes, they were enjoying being there. I was getting time to be with other students I need to give attention. Well, and then it's kind of like being a stay-at-home mom, but like scaled way up to kids you don't have that emotional and physical connection to where you're with kids all day and you don't have any adult interaction and that can drive someone nutty real quick like I am so glad that my husband is working from home more just to have I don't know like the backup like good cop bad cop and then like he's there to talk to me throughout the day and it's not nearly as lonely so I imagine like it's stressful to be the only adult everybody's looking to you for answers all the time 
sensory overload probably so to have somebody else in there to just kind of alleviate all of the pressure that falls on you for the well-being of 30 children has to be helpful yeah it is it's like you you actually got a really good analogy there of like the single parent that's what it feels like as a teacher sometimes and the worst part is about being a teacher it's also probably the best part is you do actually build genuine connections with kids and you do care about them. This is one of the very few jobs, if you're a very passionate teacher, that you go home and you take the work home with you. It may not be the physical marking work, but you stress and you worry about kids that don't even belong to you. Right. And with there are parents out there who, who are absent parents who may not at least to your observations, invest enough time in their children. It can be really hard. And by having those little gems, those parents that do come in to, to go on an excursion or to help out, those are things that make teaching worthwhile when you see it's not just you um, pushing right. it all uphill. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be helpful. And there's, there's just so many benefits. So if you're able to get inside of your kid's classroom, do it as frequently as you can just do it yeah i think that's a good place to to finish this one off perfect this is a good one um for any of the listeners out there i know that kaylee has a very big following on her homeschooling page 500 odd people so i'm expecting there to be at least 400 downloads for this episode alone so if you're not list if you're listening to this and you know that people that aren't listening to it you need to direct it to them because we can't help you if you're not listening, people, and you can't actually send us questions or something you need advice on. So we're here for you as long as you're listening to us. There you go. All right, everybody. We're going to catch you next time. This was the second episode of The Homeroom. We're going to come up with a third topic in a short period of time and we'll get some more content out for you at the moment i'm releasing this on its own dedicated rss feed as well as on my own Uh, i might only put one or two more of these up on my own podcast and then from that point out it's only going to be on the homeroom educating educators feed all right everybody catch you next time (laughs) 